critical race theory seeks to examine from a legal perspective any hidden power structures within the legal system and social issues of the United States that might put individuals at a disadvantage based on race. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. Before the advent of network radio and television and interstate highways, information and ideas were slow to arrive in the Appalachian region. Folks who were tucked away in the small towns and cities insulated by the mountains would quite often be unaware of what was happening in the world outside. But along came satellite TV and radio, and by the 1960s, Appalachia was connected to the rest of the world by easier-to-navigate highway systems. Fast forward to today, and Appalachia is really no different than anywhere else. Practically everyone watches the 24-hour news cycles on CNN and Fox, and of course, everyone's phones have the Internet and Facebook. So no matter where you are in America, what's happening in society is right there in plain sight. It also means that social progression may not have originated where you live, but it may be on its way. On this Level Paths podcast, Critical Race Theory, Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin are joined by Dr. Mark Phillips from Tri-State Bible College. How does critical race theory have an impact on Appalachia? Here's Rex Howe. Welcome back to another Level Paths podcast. We're here to affirm, encourage, equip those of you who are ministering in Appalachia, and we are together looking for the glory of God in clear view. We want to see mountains leveled and valleys raised up so that we can see the glory of the Lord and His salvation in clear view. And we have a special topic today. To get us started, Matt, why don't you tell us about the very first time you heard of CRT? So a few years ago, we were in Birmingham, Alabama for the Southern Baptist Convention. And what had really up to that point been a non-controversial time, and that was the time for resolutions that generally comes towards the end of the convention. Resolutions often just thank the city for hosting us, thank Alabama Baptists for being great sports and being a part of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention helping out. And a big change happened in Resolution 9. Resolution 9, it was being presented by someone who had great respect for someone who I know loves the Lord, had uh, presented Resolution 9, and in it, he brought up critical race theory and intersectionality. For the first time, I heard those words, and like many in that stadium, I started to Google, what is critical race theory? What is intersectionality? And and this one passed pretty quickly. And it was not until later that we found out how controversial and what actually was going on. And so for the first time, I was thrown headlong into this whole issue of critical race theory and intersectionality. I have the resolution pulled up in front of me, and I want to read just a snippet out of that. Here's some of what is said in this resolution. Critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. And it continues on, but that was my first introduction 
as I hear critical race theory is used as a analytical tool and that intersectionality really explains the background. So that is my introduction to this topic of critical race theory. So we're in Appalachia. Is this relevant to us? Are we cut off from this? What do you think? Well, Appalachia can no longer be viewed monolithically. Appalachia has direct connection to the rest of the world through the internet, through television. What at one time took decades to enter into Appalachia now is a radical change. I mean, I remember going to my grandparents' house and picking up the telephone and hearing other voices on the telephone and everyone in that holler use that same telephone line. And now to think that you have the world at your fingertips is a very, very different experience. This idea of critical race theory, critical theory, all is brought home right here to Appalachia. So to help us out today, we've brought in a special guest, Dr. Mark Phillips. And Dr. Phillips is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Tri-State Bible College. He also serves as the online development project manager here at Tri-State Bible College. And in his local church, he serves as the administrator at First Baptist Church of Proctorville. Mark, how are you? Doing well, brother. Thanks for having me uh, on the show. We want to back up just one step as we continue the conversation. Matt has already mentioned critical race theory or CRT, but let's back up one step and talk about just critical theory. Can you introduce to us what is critical theory? Critical theory dates back almost a century. Uh, to European studies, but in its simplest form, critical theory is somewhat of an umbrella term that covers a variety of fields of study. Critical theory is an examination of structures within a society, including economics and legal structures, and how those structures shape a culture and the society that they're a part of. So, The fields that are under this umbrella, in addition to critical race theory, include feminist studies, social justice theories, LGBTQ studies. There's a number of these different fields that kind of take a prominent place in our culture at the moment. The field of critical race theory originated in legal studies in the late 80s and early 90s to see what sort of vestiges of legal issues or legal matters might be harming minority groups that these structures aren't seen unless you go looking for them. And so it's kind of a way to analyze our legal system, our government, the way society functions. It's not a bad thing to go looking for these structures in our society. We don't want anyone to be oppressed or marginalized. So it has its place. I think the question before us today as we discuss it is, uh, how should it be utilized? And can it be utilized for the good? Or is it being used to disrupt society and the church? So, Mark, as we think about critical theory, can you then help us understand what is critical race theory and what is intersectionality? And are they useful tools for us? I think they are useful tools. I think it's a matter of examining American society. Critical race theory, again, began with critical legal studies. There's an excellent article on the American Bar Association website that deals with just what 
critical race theory is. Now, anyone who studies church history knows that a theologian can come along, write a theological piece about a particular subject matter, and then their followers a generation or two later take the ideas and run with them. And so the original critical race theory, as it was proposed maybe 30 years ago, newer scholars have come along, taken that information and run with it, and have expanded it greatly to the point of where it seems to have politicized our nation today. So a good thing that existed primarily in the face after the U.S. Civil Rights Act, after the Jim Crow laws, after the segregation matters, after the Civil War, it was looking for these structures that might not be beneficial to minority groups. And that's an honest question that I think everyone has to be honest about American culture, where it's been, where it's headed. So, you know, if someone is being unjustly treated, here's that matter of justice, and is being held back within our society, it's good to look for that sort of thing. Today, though, it's grown beyond its original scope. And so the three of us today are discussing this matter of race in America as three white men discussing race. So we're going to be honest today for the listener. So if anyone has any questions, of course, please let us know. So critical race theory utilizes a notion of intersectionality, which comes from critical theory, the many fields of it. For example, if a person is a member of a minority group that can be marginalized or feels marginalized in our society, for example, you could have a female Asian disabled American veteran, and because of the disability as a result of serving our nation, and perhaps because of being Asian, those would be two marginalized groups that would intersect. So it's conceivable a person based on their experience, as we mentioned before, would be a member of a number of marginalized groups. And so that is what is being referred to by intersectionality, how many marginalized groups in society a person may be a member of. So here we are, we're three white guys talking about race, and we recognize that our perspective on this is going to be very limited. It's going to be limited to being three white guys in Appalachia talking about race. We also are people who recognize the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. We recognize that it is through the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture that we understand who Christ is, understand how he has made us, understand the importance of evangelism, and on and on we go. So how do we understand racism in view of Scripture as we don't dismiss the experience of others? Much of critical race theory does away with propositional truth and elevates the experience, elevates the story. And so how do we understand racism in view of scripture and yet not dismiss those experiences that others have? And I want to jump in here if I can, Matt, because that's important. We want to understand scripture as adequate and sufficient to speak to these issues. We don't want the conversation to go off in a direction where scripture is not speaking into the conversation anymore. And we all know this passage, but I would just want to read it. And then Mark will let you take over and answer for us, but 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God is telling us in his word that it is sufficient in whatever circumstance, situation we find ourselves. And so I believe that to be true. So Mark, help us out here. As Matt asked, we want to believe in the sufficiency of scripture. At the same time, we don't want to be dismissive to these lived experiences and stories of others. How do we do this? Well, using the sufficiency of scripture as bearing God's image, every person does. We know what the word or the Bible says foundationally that all peoples are one blood, that God's desires for all peoples, all nations to be saved. Christ has commanded us to go spread the good news, the gospel, and disciple all ethnic groups, nations. The Bible's pretty clear on that. So in light of seeing some of the tenets of what contemporary writers and speakers would say of critical race theory, the question becomes, to what degree is this impacting the church? Uh, You'll see a number of theologians on one side of the matter where they take a look within the structure of their own local church body to look for possible race structures within that. Then you might have someone at a very conservative side of the church that unfortunately may not want to even engage with discussing the subject. I have a feeling that somewhere in between in healthy conversations of listening to others and what they've been through and uh, what their experience has been, that, that we will have these good conversations. I would add that back with the original development of critical theory, long before critical race theory, it was not only legal structures that were being examined, it was economic structures. And so now that we're you know, living in a world that is a bit postmodern, we went through a modernist phase up until about the Second World War, and then things started getting questioned. And we dealt with postmodernism and relativism, and postmodernism doesn't really care much for objective or absolute truth. People can sort of make their own truth without going heavy into other fields. The idea of a person's personal experience or lived experience has really come to the fore in discussions, whereas the Bible, which those who have a high view of Scripture would say that the Bible is absolute truth, it's a source of absolute truth, since God cannot lie and he has given us his word, then his word must therefore be true. So we see these conflicts between cultural forces now and a number of voices wanting their view to be true. And so it really comes down to a bit of discernment on researching these issues, and are these voices speaking something that aligns with God's word, and to what degree? Now, because critical theory deals with economics as well, our Lord Jesus says, we'll always have the poor with us. He wasn't commanding there to be an existence of the poor or dooming people to be poor. He's just merely stating an objective reality of life in this world, that you'll have the rich and you'll have the poor. And as part of his body, in addition to the good news of the gospel for a person's uh, spiritual and eternal well-being, how can we 
lesson, what happens to them economically and physically. So it's a very deep issue that brings a lot of passion in people from everyone who discusses it. And so with this podcast, you know, we're dealing with issues in Appalachia. And as someone who grew up here, one of the things economically that becomes very apparent to all of us at an early age is the income disparity in Appalachia, that economics in Appalachia, you know, there's a lot of people who for generations have suffered in poverty of all races, I might add, when we get down to portions of Southern West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, even pockets in Southern Ohio. Poverty is not a discriminator of race. (laughs) Poverty can strike anyone. And so I don't want the listener to think as if we are disregarding the economic status of anyone, regardless of race. I'm just giving my lived experience here of being an Appalachian that many friends of all races who have suffered and are suffering economically by virtue of being in this region of the country, not their ethnic background. Coming up on September 23rd at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, the Appalachian Ministry Conference, fulfilling your ministry in a post-COVID Appalachia. The keynote speaker is Dr. Tom Cheney, author of Church Revitalization in Rural America. The first ever Appalachian Ministry Conference will focus on engaging Christian ministry in Appalachia for God's glory in a world impacted by COVID-19. The day starts at 9 a.m. and includes breakout sessions, lunch, Q&A sessions, Appalachian storytelling, and of course, you'll hear from keynote speaker, Dr. Tom Cheney, Rex Howell from Tri-State Bible College, and Matt Shamlin from the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Again, the Appalachian Ministry Conference is Thursday, September 23rd at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. To register, visit tsbc.edu and click on Apply Now or call 740-377-2520. When we think about Appalachia, Appalachia is about 84% white. And so that's going to limit our perspective. From what I understand, my high school was one of the last public high schools in the United States to have a person of color graduate from. And that is a school that started in the 60s. I graduated there in the 90s. And in the 90s, there was yet to be a person of color to graduate from that school. In Appalachia, we're not, as far as melanin is concerned, we're not that diverse of a people. And so that's going to lend itself to believing that we can just cut ourselves off from such a discussion. But there are people of color. There have always been. As a matter of fact, it was uh, Native Americans who were the first settlers in Appalachia. It was only the Europeans who moved in so much later. So we can't cut ourselves off from such discussion. As we think of this, I'm reminded of the quote from Golda Meir. She said, one must not try to erase the past merely because it does not fit the present. Hmm. We have to be willing to have these discussions 
And that really brings it to as something that you said on how we listen, that we listen to faithful black voices, that we listen to those who have maybe even some who have disparaging perspectives than our own in order to understand, not because what they say is above scripture. In fact, we view what they say through the lens of scripture. And that is so, so very important, just like Rex said there about the sufficiency of scripture and what we find there. You bring up a good point with your statistics, Matt. We're living predominantly in, you know, west of the Allegheny Mountains, which had a variety of people groups settle, Scots, Irish, European settlers. So our racial percentages would therefore be different in our portion of Appalachia than when you move south of the Alleghenies, get into the Carolinas, and even the state of Virginia, which is a different state than West Virginia. I know we all bring this up because we hear it all the time. And I I know we all want to be careful at looking at our portion of Appalachia as if it is the same as the rest of Appalachia. So we are aware of this to the listener. We're not trying to make these broad distinctions. We're speaking from a particular unique portion of Appalachia We could go on and on about that, but uh, we are aware of what we are discussing here. I know that where we are in the tri-state region, Southern Ohio, Northeastern Kentucky, and then what we got, Western West Virginia, sometimes it's referred to as Central Appalachia or North Central Appalachia, depending on who who you're reading after. Now, ARC, which stands for Appalachian Regional Commission, that's something that we are familiar with. If you're listening today, that's a great resource for you to find out more about Appalachia. They have an article on income and poverty in Appalachia. And from 2010, 2014 into 2015, 2019, median household income in Appalachia actually increased 8%. So let me just give you those numbers. The median household income in Appalachia, $51,916 compared to the U.S. median at the same time. $62,843. And then the poverty rate in Appalachia, 15.2%. So you can compare that to national averages. But I think those stats help people kind of understand some of the things that we see. And I think to change the subject a little bit, something that keeps coming up for me, and I've seen this in my graduate studies too and postgraduate studies, I am wholly committed to exegesis of the biblical text. And what that means is that to the best of our ability, we want to pull out from Scripture the truths of God's Word. Now, the opposite of that is something called eisegesis, where we come to the Scripture with a philosophy, a disposition, a preconceived notion, and try to make the text fit to that. And so, as we have these discussions, I think an exegetical approach is where we want to start. And I think it also can speak to these issues as we listen to one another. For example, just to pull one passage that I think may speak to these conversations and maybe a center or a hub for listening to one another is a place like Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, we have this reality that we've been reconciled to God through his grace in the work of his son. But also, verses 11 through 22, there's a reconciliation and a peace that has happened between Gentiles and Jews in the body of Christ through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And so I think an exegesis of passages such as that 
can contribute to listening to one another, understanding where we're coming from, but also uniting one another in the work of Christ. And not to diminish the role of race in any way. That's not this discussion in any way. As a matter of fact, we're trying to recognize that through the lens of Scripture, we're going to elevate the importance of every person made in the image of God and why that these types of issues cannot be ignored. So that really brings us to the question, what role does working for justice play in Christian ministry? You've heard the stats on the poverty level within Appalachia. You hear that the average income in Appalachia is almost 20% below that of the national average. So Mark, what role does working for justice play in Christian ministry? Let's step back just to get a big picture view. How many voices do you hear crying out worldwide for justice, Christian or otherwise? There's a strong sense that something is not right, that something needs fixed. This is somewhat foundational to apologetics as well. Where does this desire to see the wrongness of the world made bright, where does that originate? Why is there such a condition to human life in the world that things could be better? The Bible is replete with God's desire for justice to make things right. He brings it down to a personal level, walk humbly, seek justice and mercy. So as we explore these concepts, one of the questions that has come up that you'll see discussions of is to what degree is the gospel, the good news, tied to this idea of justice? And that's a big area of discussion right now. There are some theologians who think that the gospel nowadays needs to be combined with an idea of justice. Biblically, God will make all things right one day through Christ. The sense that I'm, I'm looking at is this distinction of, well, he's already provided justice for individuals, right, through the cross, but not yet has everything been made right. So you have this sense of already, but not yet. So God is busy reconciling the world through the peace he's made through the cross with his son, Jesus. And so as we discuss these issues as a church now, working outward to society uh, with the command to go, I think we will be taking a long, hard look at what constitutes justice. The other big question is, with everyone wanting justice, has to be a question of by what or whose standard of justice, because one of the hallmarks of postmodern thought and critical theory, taking a step back, is that individual cultures decide what is right and what is wrong. Whereas one who has a high view of scripture is that God decides what is right and what is wrong, and he has stated it to us. So that's part of the conflict that American Christians have between a society that says in its founding documents, you're free because you bear God's image, and it's obvious to everyone that you've been made free. So how do you live as a citizen in the United States with a plurality of people of different views And then how do you live, if you're in Christ, spiritually, you're already seated in the heavenlies. You're already looking ahead to what the prevailing of justice. So that's kind of the friction point of where we are as Christians in Appalachia 
this idea of already, not yet, and then also being citizens, as it were, spiritually of heaven already, and physically we are here uh, in the United States. And our Lord Jesus is aware of this. He had his comment about rendering to Caesar, giving to God what bears his image. So the Lord is aware of this, and I think we honor him by listening to these voices and having honest, open discussions and hearing what people have to say. Wow. And so many things come into mind as I listen. As we think of local church ministry in Appalachia, you know, what can we do? What can pastors do? What can church leaders, deacons, elders, stewards do? We've talked about the sufficiency of scripture. And Mark, you pointed out so many things. I'm thinking of the Imago Day, the image of God contributes to this discussion. I think total depravity contributes to this discussion. We shouldn't be surprised when society's systems and structures are corrupt. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Shouldn't be surprised when individuals are sinful and corrupt. We also know that God's mission, the Missio Day, is for the nations, every tribe, tongue, kindred, right? And we see that in Revelation, surrounding the throne are people from every place and location and language worshiping and giving praise to him. And the desire for justice and already not yet, we see that in the New Testament as we work out the work of Christ in our own lives and in our community. So the scripture is sufficient to speak to these things for sure. We've talked about humility. I think that's key that we come to this conversation with trust in the authority of Scripture and with humility toward one another. I do not know what it's like to be a Black father of Black sons. I don't. It's impossible. I need to listen. And that comes to the third thing that we've definitely talked about today. We've got to listen and reason together, as the wisdom literature tells us. There's something innate in the heart of every believer. I mean, I think of this When we even think of something like the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they have certain unalienable rights. I mean, that comes from general revelation. But as we think of that, we recognize that it was the Lord Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a recognition that things are not the way that they're supposed to be and that we have a longing for things to be as they will be. There is that already and not yet. Here's where we are and we desire for them to be as they were meant to be and not just meant to be, but as they will be in the return of Christ. Here in Appalachia, we have a desire. That's the part of the reason for this podcast. In fact, the very verses that give the name to this podcast is a recognition of that coming kingdom when the glory of God will be evident. We have a desire that the will of God will be done in Appalachia as it is in heaven. And because of that, we have to recognize every person is made in the image of God. Every person has value to God. It's not a discussion of liberalism and we long for this social justice backed by Marxism thing, but it is a recognition that as followers of Christ, we recognize that that kingdom is going to come and we welcome its coming. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so with that, we know that every person is a bearer of the image of God and they're of value 
and anything that would come in the way that would diminish that value, then as a follower of Jesus, then we have to stand up and say, this is not how it's meant to be. And there is a better kingdom to come. Guys, thank you so much. It's been a joy. It's always a joy to talk to you men. And uh, we pray that our listeners benefit greatly from what we've talked about here today. Amen. Thank you for having me. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to joining you gentlemen again sometime. As believers, we find ourselves in a strange spot. We live in a kingdom that hasn't been completely fulfilled just yet, but we also live here. And while we're here, there are things to wrestle with and to consider. On this episode of the Level Paths podcast, we're reminded that sometimes in order to be effective witnesses for the gospel, we have to listen to what's going on around us, even when it doesn't make perfect sense. Is critical race theory something we subscribe to? Well, as we live day to day, that question can be answered by understanding that our human desire for justice comes from our having been formed in God's image. And whether we live in Appalachia or New York City, pointing people to Jesus Christ and His gospel will help them understand that we're not made for this world, but another perfect world. If you're a pastor or maybe you're at a church in the Appalachian region and you're looking for more effective ways to minister to the people right where you are, you can reach out to Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin at Tri-State Bible College by emailing rex.howe at tsbc.edu or matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. And again, if you'd like more information about Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, visit tsbc.edu. This is the Level Paths Podcast, an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.